Well, I told you last week as I gave an introduction to the book of Job in this series on God in the midst of our suffering, um, that today would be the day that we start delving in, not to Job as a book study, but looking into the very story of Job, to see Job in his suffering, to hear Job's lament in the midst of his suffering, and how God shows up and reveals himself to Job, and indeed to all of his friends, in the redemption of Job's life, delivering him through and out of the suffering. Okay? Before we get into that, when... Korea Debbie and I were in Cookville, Tennessee, uh, while we were away for a month for, from uh, Hurricane Katrina, devastating New Orleans. You know, I mentioned to you that Michael Card had come in to do that uh, concert, but also a teaching in the midst of the concert, and he had just written the book that I've suggested to all of you to get, A Sacred Sorrow. And he did a bit of teaching that night in the midst of the concert. There's something that I was reminded of that I want to share with you. Something that he taught before we even start looking at Job. And it has everything to do with lament and how God has created us. He said one of the first things that we learn growing up as babies, as infants, is that if we cry long enough, what's going to happen? Mama's going to show up. Daddy's going to show up. Somebody's going to show up. Now, what are the various reasons that a baby might cry in their infancy stage? Hunger. Hunger. Wet. Pain. Pain. Wet. Wet. Or dirty, let's be honest. Okay. They want mama. They want mama. Lonely. They're alone. These things are in a child, in the human person, created right there from the beginning. That if we cry for these things, needs, real human needs, needs we were created for, that somebody's going to show up and take care of those needs. Why? Because the human person was created to be in absolute desperate need for God at all times. Even from our birth. There is created, even in our infancy, an absolute need, or I should say this, an absolute need to cry out, to wail, to lament for things that we need, but understood by this. Ultimately, who is it that fulfills and the only one that can fulfill every need? Because it's not the parents. Our Lord God. He said we were created that way. So when we look at this wilderness journey in between the fall of mankind where we journey now and in our baptism, journeying to grow back towards the intimacy that God had desired from the very beginning with man. When we start looking at this wilderness lament, my friends, we were already created for it. If there's anything we can say is that this culture has tamed us away from such things, has tamed us away from an actualization in our lives of a lament that cries out with the needs that we have that God can only fulfill. Because when we do cry out in those laments, God does eventually, in His perfect timing, 
show up and fulfill and meet those needs and reveal himself to us even greater and deeper all through our lives. And I thought it was fascinating that he said that because it is true. You think of infants. We're programmed to lament when we have need or discomfort or pain or loneliness. Right? Okay. Let's keep that in mind. So we come to the book of Job. And what we want to cover today, for the most part, is what they call the prologue. Okay? Again, Job is written, as I said last week, like a divine play unfolding. Okay? You have various parts to it to remember the story of the life of Job and what God did in the middle of his great suffering and lament. So what we're going to begin with is the very beginning of that book. I'm going to point out a few things and we'll discuss a few things. So here's how we have Job described to us in Job chapter 1. So there's a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Now that chapter goes on to describe Job's absolute blessedness, his faith, all of his faithfulness, and everything that he had been given. It even says that Job was the greatest of all people in the East in Job chapter 1. He lived again, like I said last week, he kind of lived in a sort of paradise. His faithfulness, his faith, and God blessing him, he had all the goods. And he had a blessed family. There, it almost seemed like there was no negative, right? And that's what we have described to us. And now listen to the blessedness of his family and Job's incredible love for them, also mentioned in chapter 1, where it says, And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Job is not only faithful over his own life, faithful to offer sacrifices for his own life, but out of his deep love for his ten children, he offers sacrifices daily on their behalf for their sins. Does this man not have the heart of God? I would even say he has the heart of Christ to offer sacrifice that covers another. You see? This is how Job is being described to us. And it says, thus Job did regularly. You see his love for his children. you got to see that in that. A little challenge. challenge came to me. How many of us are offering up the sacrifices of our prayers for interceding for our children? Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm not even looking for an answer. I, I, I fail and succeed sometimes all at the same time. Right? It ebbs and flows, but it was a wonderful reminder when I look at the righteousness of Job to remember my children, to offer the sacrifice of prayer interceding for their souls. 
So he wanted them to be close to God. He wanted them to be so close to God that he would offer those sacrifices to them. But then something happens. In the midst of this paradise of living, Satan the accuser, and I say that very specifically, Satan the accuser, this is his nature, shows up before God. And here's the story. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Okay. Satan challenges God. And God says, have your way. Let's see. Let me ask you a question. So he gives to Satan the power to bring suffering to Job in every aspect of his life except his human person. Right? Does this seem reasonable to anyone? No. No. If anybody answers yes, come on. Job is a man of absolute faithfulness. Job is a man who not only offers sacrifices for his own sins, but the sins of his family. He is upright before God, and therefore God has blessed everything he has. It's gone with this Torah obedience model. If I follow you, you bless. If I don't, you curse. Right? Nothing in what God is doing in our human minds can possibly seem reasonable allowing Satan to cause suffering into Job's life in every area but his human person. And you know, when we sit here very honestly and answer, no, Father Mark, that's not reasonable of God. It shows how little we know God. That's the first thing we need to notice. Is this related in any way to lead us not into temptation? Oh. It could be. <clears throat> lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm going to get back with you on that because it's a wonderful question. Ma'am, thank you. Thank you. It doesn't seem reasonable because we are human. We do not have the vastness of the mind and person of God. We do not fully understand His ways. How He works in the lives of all. Obviously, again, what is the goal of God in everything that He does and allows? What's the goal? To bring us to Him. Would, would you say by whatever means? Yes. Yeah. Whatever it yeah, we, we, we rarely know the means. God intimately knows the means. It's His plan. Huh? It's His plan. It's His plan. In fact, the reality is, when you look at the whole life of mankind on earth and their relationship with God, from the fall on, even, actually, even before the fall, God has always, and I mean always, been using Satan to foil Satan. Old Covenant 
and new covenant. He has been using the deceiver. He has been using the accuser to foil the accuser and to reveal himself to mankind. Let's take a look at this in the life of Job. I'll go through this li- his life with you. So Satan thinks that he can outwit God, so he accuses God. You do notice that. He wasn't just accusing Job. He said, you, God, have put a hedge of protection. You have blessed Job. You have done all the... Of course that's why Job is so faithful to you and follows you. The accuser is even accusing God. Right? God allows Satan to have audience with him. And then he allows Satan to take away all that Job has other than his health at this point. Job laments, which we're going to see, but he never denies God. Satan then will take away Job's health, we'll also see this morning. Job laments and finally comes close to being at the absolute end of his humanity. And that's when God shows up into the picture to bring Job to himself, foil Satan, and reveal all things to Job. Job has that blessed repentance, which we're going to see, and God not only redeems Job in his latter days, but his latter days were far more blessed than the first. God is using Satan, and Satan can't figure it out. The deceiver was deceived. How many times do you hear the church fathers make that statement? The deceiver was deceived. God allowed Satan to be used to set up God's most complete revelation of himself. Okay. We see this in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? Think about it. God becomes man. The first thing Satan does after his baptism, after Christ's baptism, is what? Throw temptations his way. The accuser, the deceiver, seeks to deceive and cause a fall. Satan not then thinks, after he's been overcome by that, he thinks he can have victory by killing Jesus, doesn't he? God, what? Allows himself to be killed. To go into death. But again, as the fathers say, Satan, the deceiver, was deceived. And just when Satan thought that victory was his, when Christ gave up his spirit, he was horrified by what had just occurred. Because the God-man had entered into Hades, burst it asunder, and freed the captive. Do you see this? Let's be very careful when we look at our own suffering. Let's be very careful when we journey with the suffering of others. To think that we really know the mind of God. One of the greatest things that we will find as we look at Job's lament, David's lament, and a few others as we continue to go along this series, is we're going to find that one of the greatest things about lament is that these people, Job and David and others, they are throwing all their humanity against God in the midst of great suffering. Unabashedly. We're going to see that in part of Job today. They're saying things that we as good little Christians would seek to correct in saying to God. And yet it's the very thing that God takes, reveals Himself, and yes, brings repentance to that person and reveals Himself for their, A, deliverance, certainly for their salvation, even if the suffering is to continue. 
But I wanted to point that out. I think it's important for us to know that the reason we're so abhorred with God allowing Satan to have his way with Job is simply because we really don't get the mind of God. We'll always not totally get the mind of God. And we need to be honest with that. So let's take a look at Satan's first strike at Job. Now we're told that by various means, Job loses a great deal of his property by way of weather and fire and other things. His livestock, structures that are on his property. Then he comes with the, he gets the message that one by one all of his servants are dying. They're being killed by raiders and other things. He's losing his property. He's losing his servants. And finally, the most devastatingly of all, Job loses every one of his children. Ten of his children that he offered sacrifices to cover daily for them. He loses his children in one fell swoop as they're all in a building feasting like the scriptures talked about. And a wind comes and it falls on them. Not one survives. Now, you tell me real quick, with that picture of what just happened in Job's life, I know I said it very quickly, what is Job going through? Pain? Confusion? Confusion? Anger? Anger? Extreme anxiety? Extreme anxiety? A lot of fear. Fear. This has happened, what else? What's next? Very good. I can't imagine any anguish that isn't included in that. Yeah. It's all at once. Yeah. So much. So much. Good gracious. Bad enough to lose land and things that are going on that, that you're dependent upon. Horrifying enough to lose your children. One child in one day. Right? He's going through this. I, I literally sit there and look at this and I say he's darn near going through the torments of hell. And that encompasses everything that, that each one of you uh, has said. Did it have in there that on each one of these disasters that only one person survived and it ran and told... There's one person that survived, others, uh, yeah, except for the kids. Well, it was one of the servants saw it or something exactly. and ran back. Yeah, there was somebody to bring the message. Yeah, but that was the only one who survived. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's right. Yeah. It just seems like... Because my yes. head, it's a huge gamble God takes that he can actually get us to do what we're Say that, say that again. I, I, it strikes me as a huge gamble, and I watch this in other people's lives because pain does one of two things. And I watch to do horrible things for people who never come back to God. Yep. So it's this huge gamble. It must be awfully worth it to God to get him out of this total media. Because to me, that's better than where some people go. Yep. Some people destroy their lives and others. So I just think, what a gamble. How far? What a gamble. How far will God go for the potential of what he desires to offer? That is, it is an incredible gamble at times. No question. It's a great point. Now, would you like to hear Job's response after all of these things have been lost? Interested? Because it may shock you. Verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head. This is the natural mourning posture. Okay? 
he arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. Well, that's not me. He worshipped God. In the face of all of this, what does this righteous man do? In response to such agony and suffering, he proclaims the worth of God. Which shows us something. God, at least in his journey, at this point, knew God well enough to know that circumstances, as awful as they were, they don't change the Lord his God. He at least knew that. And so he proclaimed the worth of God. And I want you to remember this theme. Never forget this pattern. In fact, let me, let me tell you the words of Job's worship. The words of his faith that come right after that verse. In verse 21, And Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. God, he acknowledged, the giver of every good gift that he'd ever had, including his ten children. Now I want you to understand this. If you think that Job's worship was joyful, you're kidding yourself. Job's worship is lament. I promise you that these words spoken by Job, by Job were with tears rolling down his face, anguish in his heart, feeling every bit of pain of loss of all that he has lost that day, and yet still has the blessed faith of saying, the Lord gave all these things, and the Lord has taken away. In other words, whether he gives, whether he doesn't, whether he takes away, blessed be his name. God has not changed, and I stay with him. That's, that's what he's saying, right? You and I, if you're like me, you and I have to work to get there sometimes, don't we? And sometimes we don't arrive, if we're honest. I don't care what we mouth. We can mouth all the things that we want to mouth, the great praises to God. But if we're still bitter towards God, or questioning God, or confused, or writhing in pain... We really have not gotten there yet. We have, we have that work to do of lament where God comes and shows up and brings us along and sustains us. But I don't want you to forget this pattern of this worship as lament. Because if you remember correctly, I told you in either week one or week two of this series, when God tells Moses to go and release his people, to go to Pharaoh and call for their deliverance, he goes to Pharaoh and he, and he says what God's words were. He said, I want you to release my people that they may go into the wilderness and do what? Worship me. God's entire plan through the wilderness, which would include suffering and doubt and fear and anxiety among his people. By the way, you talk about a gamble. He brought his people out of a place where they at least had food, though they were treated horribly, into a place where they didn't know where the next meal was coming from. God's always gambling out of his perfect wisdom. So is it really a gamble? 
our knowledge of him, knowing him, so that we may worship. And remember what worship means, declaring the worth of the one we're talking about. And we can't declare the worth of someone unless we know the one. Right? Yes? Well, kind of reminds me of the parts of this talk of this glory to God kind of things. Mm. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but in parts of it, it talks about uh, the creation and how in the hurricanes God will set the forest on fire in huge blazes. Yeah. And you know, it talks about all that, and then it ends with glory be for God to who brings low yeah. the pride yeah. of man. Yeah. So very good. The, the person is sees all the terrible things but realizes that there is a
But that is Job's worship. That is Job saying, you must show up. You are the only one. The God that I don't even know quite frankly fully yet. You're the one that must show up in the midst of this. And I will not let go until you do. And that's what we need to take to heart in our minds when we consider our lament in the midst of suffering before God. That we really are worshiping. We really are remaining in our oneness with Him. Because everything that comes out of our mouth that's stupid or foolish or out of pain, we're not thinking straight, we let it fly. Even the blaming God for the things that happen in our life. God has the divine way to correct Bring us to repentance by His revelation of Himself. He's not concerned about our foolish words sometimes. And as we grow throughout our lives through various suffering and experiencing God all the more, our lament changes. It does mature because God has revealed us and healed our soul. And what comes out of our mouth comes from where? Within the soul. Okay? So let's take a look at Satan's second strike at Job. So the first one didn't work in Satan's mind. He took his possessions, he took his servants, all but the one that reported, and he took all of his children. So Satan once again has an audience with God. Having failed in getting Job to deny his God, he again takes the posture of the accuser. He says, okay, so Job did not deny you when he lost all these things, but strike his bones and his flesh. And he will curse you to your face. And God allows Satan to do what he wants to Job's body, but commands him to spare his life. He just can't kill him. Another gamble. So here's the description we get of Job's physical suffering. This begins in Job chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. Then his wife said, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. There's the love. There's the helpmate we were looking for. Right? I halfway joke about that, but I want you not to forget about something. Who else is going through the suffering of losing property and all their kids? Come on. Right? And she's losing grip on faith here. Obviously. Curse God and die, husband. Because now look at you. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Again, to Job, now his now sufferings on himself. Not just in his heart, not just in his emotions. Not just in his mind, but his entire body is covered with boils. And you're going to see how his friends react to seeing him. So he must have looked absolutely awful okay, to the sight. And he still doesn't change his posture toward God. And at this point in the narrative, we get introduced to Job's three friends. Okay, I'll read you this. 
Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. Okay, so these three friends. And last time I told you about Zophar, and now you get Bildad, the shortest person in Scripture, the Shuhite. I'll let you think about that one for a minute. His three friends come to him. Listen to how they respond. For they'd made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. And so they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. They don't even recognize their friend. He's so bad off physically. They, it's an atrocity before them is what they see. And what do they do? They grieve. They weep. They are in pain over their friend's condition. And what do they do? They really do nothing. They just come and be present. And they sit with Job, it says, for seven days and seven nights. They just sat with him in his agony. And oh, that they would have just stayed there. Because what you see in that is probably one of the greatest Christian postures we can do when we see those who are beloved to us suffering is to shut our mouths and just be present. Just come and be present. I can't tell you how many times I'll go into hospital rooms. There are times, yes, where I will offer something. I'll talk. we'll, We'll have conversation. There are times I'll just sit and be present for them particularly when people are departing this life. The best thing I can do sometimes is to stand over in a corner and pray or read the Psalms or just be present in their life. And I would say that's the same thing for all of us who go to see the suffering, our beloved, those who are our friends. And Job's friends, they take that posture and they do that. Unfortunately... At some point, they're going to open their mouths, and this is where they all go haywire. And we're not going to get into that. We're going to get into that next week. But after seven days of sitting with Job, and Job grieving and mourning and writhing in his own physical pain, and coupled with his emotional pain already, Job finally is going to speak. And he's going to speak his first lament to God. And we're going to look at that this morning. I'm going to read that to you. I'm going to read parts of it to you because it's a long chapter of lament. And what I want to ask you is, when you hear Job's first lament, I want you to ask yourselves, what emotions are coming out? What is he throwing before God? Just ask yourself that question, okay? So Job's lament. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above all not may God above not see it, nor the light shine upon it. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none and not see the dawning of the day, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Why did I not die? At birth, 
Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest. Why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter of soul. Who, go, who long for death, but it does not come. And search for it more than hidden treasures. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. What emotions? What are coming, what's coming out? But he's telling this to God. This is his prayer. This is his lament at this point. What are the emotions? Sorry, he, yeah. Why was I even questioned his birth? Should it should not have ever happened. Because if I wasn't born, I wouldn't be doing what? Suffering. Like this. Or those around me. Yeah. His whole sense of purpose is gone. I mean, his whole purpose was God. He lost, he lost his born. He lost his ten children. They're not there. What was the point of him being born? He's not going to be able to have his children are taken from him. Every aspect of his life. And his faith. There's yep. nothing left. Yep. Somebody hadn't said something that I think is very critical when you really look at this. You need to hear this. This is a suicidal lament. Don't kid yourself. Let, let, me, let, me, let me show what I, what I mean by that. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul who long for death but it doesn't come? See, and I'm not talking about he's looking at putting something, you know, stabbing himself and taking his life right in that moment. What is he? He's negating his entire existence before God. Why doesn't death come? I want death over this. You see that? Do you hear that? I'm sorry. Don't raise your hands. Who hadn't been there at one point? Death would be better than this moment in time. Because if I, in Job's mind, if I wasn't born, I would never have gone through this. I would never have had ten kids. Roll it down in his mind. Who then die? I would never. I, I, I. In fact, one of the things I told you in the book of Job is that it begins where you have all of the I statements. But God moves him to thou as God reveals himself through his suffering. But where is Job right now? You're hearing it. And it's okay. You didn't hear me say suicidal thoughts are okay. What he's longing for is death over life. That's the point I'm making. The death would be better. We can be tempted of that in times of great suffering. Every human can. Okay? But this is his lament before God. Now, in any other thoughts about what Job is raising up before God here after all this suffering? Yeah? I'm not sure that they believe, if he believed in the afterlife. I don't think that Jews of his time did believe in the afterlife. You know, there is a good question about that. Because uh, if you didn't hear that, uh, Korea Debbie was saying, I'm not sure that at that time uh, Job believed in an afterlife. And you need to understand this, because I've never talked about the timeline of Job's existence. They cast Job's existence, even though it was written somewhere between five and 600 before Christ. Okay? 
But the story of Job is allotted to back at the age of the patriarchs, Abraham, and so on. So it would have been before Moses, before the law was given, even though there were statutes, like we see the sacrifices for the covering of sins. That was going on. We see Abraham offering sacrifices to God, right? Okay. So it's a great question as to where Job stands with the afterlife. And we can't answer that completely. But it's a good question. I, mean, I can just imagine a lot more hopelessness, not thinking you'll ever see anybody again. Uh, that's a great point, because if they didn't understand that, his kids were gone. It's a good point. Devastating, if that's the case. Well, and, and that also brings to life the fact that you'll, you'll hear people say, I'm ready for the rapture. I'm ready for it all to end now. Let it be, right. Yeah, because I know it's much better than <clears throat> another. Right. It's a good point. It's a good point. Right. What I want you to see, though, again, I don't agree with the way Job is seeing things. And that doesn't matter. I'm not the one suffering. We have to see inside people's pain and suffering. Job's friends, by the way, although they're suffering with their friend, they're not suffering his suffering. And they don't see things right. They're going to start trying to correct Job's words. Because see, now that Job lifts this up before his three friends, his friends are getting kind of appalled at what they're hearing. Wait a minute, you're talking to God like this? And yet, it's the very lament that God, again, like I said, in our foolish lack of knowledge of Him... Right, Our limited understanding of this incredible God who does anything to bring us back to Himself, allows anything to bring us back to Himself. God will show up and correct our lament by His revelation of Himself. And you're going to see, I know I'm giving it away, but I have to say it at this point. You take a lament like this, a real desperate posture being thrown upon God, lamenting his... Even if, why did you even create me, God, is really the point that he's making. You're going to see God in his revelation correct that with basically questions back to Job. Were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did this? But by those questions, he's showing himself to Job in such a way. And what's Job's going to respond? Everything I've said up to this point, Lord... I place my hand over my mouth now. And we get to that blessed statement. At first I thought I knew you. My ears had heard of you. But now my eyes see you. I want to keep that before you because when we win, we go through intense suffering in this life. All lament, even that like Job, is showing that we are striving to hold on to God for dear life. And He honors that, just as He'll honor Job. So next time when we get together, we're going to look at the friends and how they, what they think of Job's lament, which is going to lead to further lament. In fact, the friends are going to become a further source of suffering, which is going to lead to further lament, bringing Job and conditioning Job, just like God used Satan, 
God also is going to use his friends, Job's friends, to bring him to that blessed point where Job can finally receive all that God is. Okay? Which is what he's always desiring to do over the course of our lives. Let's stand. Thank <laughs> you.